Okay, so if you've not been with us, we've uh, started a, a new short series in the very small book of uh, Ruth in the Old Testament. So on the All Age service, we just Neil did a, a very brief overview of the book, and then last week he took it into chapter one. Um, so if you weren't here, um, the recap of what's happened, I've been given the title, God's Hand in Our Good Luck. And the first thing to say, the interesting thing about this story, not only is it from the viewpoint of two women, which is very unusual in the culture and very unusual in any story in the Bible, but perhaps even more unusual is that God is never given, never speaks in this story. So God's never attributed, no words are attributed to God. Nothing that happens are actually, is actually attributed to God's doing in the book. So you could ask, ask the question, why is the book there? if that's not the case. So I think, and Charlie and I had a very brief discussion about something he's studying at the moment about, can you ascertain the author's intentions? Can you actually tell what the author was trying to, to, to get across in a biblical story? Some people would say, you can, never, you can never actually know for certain what the author's intentions were. Some people say you can. I got to say, my own per- personal opinion is, if it, if, why would it be there if we didn't think God was involved? So somehow, God is involved in this family even though God's never mentioned specifically by name. So God is, we went to see God's hand in it, and yet the start of the story is that this family have been, what would some people would say, a very unlucky family. So what happened to them is that they were living in Bethlehem, in Israel, and uh, there was a famine. And I don't know about you, lots of people all over the world have experienced famine. I can't imagine what it must be like to not know how you're going to feed your family for the next week, months or whatever. I've, we've had times when we've been skint and we're like, we're going to have to live on you know, beans on toast. But I don't think that anywhere near comes close to knowing what it must be like to be in a country where you're not sure whether the government's going to actually be able to provide enough food for people and whether your, your family's going to be able to, to, to actually eat this week. And uh, this family experienced it along with lots of other families, presumably, in Israel at the time. So much so that they actually emigrated to another country. So to have to leave your own country... Um, to, because you've not got any food, must have been pretty severe. And not only did, they, did that happen, but they went to a neighboring country called Moab, and apparently they were a- enemies of Israel. So it's a bit like us moving to Scotland. Uh, <coughs> sorry, oh, just a bit of a joke. Shouldn't, shouldn't make light of it. Uh, uh, particularly after, they, you know, if they get the referendum and get independence, you know, we'll be tired you. Um, but so they moved to Moab, enemies of Israel, and then. Um, Naomi, who's the, the, the mother in the story, her husband dies. We don't know how he died. We don't know how old he was. But clearly a massive point of, uh, of, of pain in her life. And uh, if you've been there, some of you in here have been there, um, incredibly difficult to, to experience just how much pain um, she must have felt. And if you've not ever been through that, it's really hard to imagine just how, how hurtful that must have been or how much pain she must have been in. But not only that, but within 10 years, her two only sons, Marlon and Killian, um, they died as well. And we don't know how they died. We don't know how old they were, but presumably they were you know, reasonably young. But either way, it's a mother burying not only her husband, but within 10 years, her two children as well. Now, that's pretty... I can't, I can't imagine how hard that must be to have to do that. For any parent to have to bury a child, it must be just incredibly, incredibly tough. And um, so, perhaps not surprisingly, this led to a crisis of faith for, uh, for Naomi. And by the end of the chapter, she's actually said to everybody, please don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And Mara literally translated means bitter. So as Neil said last week, it's a strange thing to do. You change your name, essentially, to say, don't call me by my name anymore, just call me bitter. 
because that's how I feel. That's how bitter I am. This is how, how, how much affected this has been, how negative this is in my life. And by the end of the chapter, she's actually attributing all the bad things that have happened to her to God. So she says in 20, verse 21, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune or bad luck upon me. So not only is she bitter because of what happened, she actually blames God for it as well. So this is the, 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 this is the sort of context with which we read in the story. And um, then Naomi decides to go home. We don't know why, but we do know that the famine is over. So we know that there, there's food again, there are crops growing again. And uh, I've heard of this in my own family, in the death of my own family, that um, sometimes people go back to the place where the person who's died, they have good memories. So she's, gone back, she's going back to Bethlehem, perhaps because that's where she grew up, and she met Elimelech, who was her husband, and maybe that's where, presumably that's where they got married. They had a lot of good memories there. And sometimes people go back to places where the good, they had good memories, in, I suppose in the sort of hope that it would bring them some kind of peace or contentment or some kind of solace in the midst of pain. Or perhaps she'd gone back really, probably more likely, because she knows there's extended family still there or that have gone back before her. And she, as a woman in that culture, she, not only has she lost her husband, who's the primary means of actually earning a living and paying bills and getting food, but she's lost her protection. She's lost, she's got not really any rights at all. So to go back where there might be some extended family um, was probably makes a lot of sense. And her two daughters-in-laws, the, the wives of Marlon and Killian, her two um, late children, um, say, we'll go with you. And uh, Naomi says, no, I don't want you to come with us. And then we, the, end of this, the end of the chapter, Ruth says, no, I'm definitely going with you. Wherever you go, I'll go with you. Well, your God will become my God. Your people will be my people. Whatever happens, me and you are not going to be separated. And so we have this amazing pledge of support from her daughter-in-law, which is really, really unusual. The other daughter-in-law, Orpah, she stays in Moab. So you could say they were an unlucky family. And you could say they've probably had more than their fair share of, of bad things. Like Everybody has bad things, don't they, happen to them in life. You expect to lose parents at some point. You know your parents are going to die, and that, you know that's going to happen. You don't probably expect to lose your children. You don't expect to go through famine. And I don't know what about you, but sometimes you meet people who just seem to be, um, have had really, really bad things happen to them, more than their fair share. That we all have bad stuff, but some people seem to have more than their fair share. And I would say perhaps Naomi's family fall into that category. And last week, Neil was saying the obvious question we ask ourselves in this, in this situation is why? Why is this happening to me? And as Morag quite helpfully said, I think, sometimes would it even help you to know why? Would that make it any better? I don't think it would. But the, the obvious, perhaps the not satisfying answer is whenever bad things happen to us in life, it's not God's fault. It's, there's an obvious answer. We're living in a world that was not as God intended it. There is brokenness, there is disease, there is famine, there is greed, and it's nearly all, nearly all of it is as a result of people's actions, isn't it? So actually, the perhaps unsatisfying answer for somebody who's going through this, and I don't recommend you say this to them if they're going through something as bad as Naomi, but it's obvious why bad things happen. We live in a broken world because of sin, <laughs> and that's the, the, the bottom line of everything. So God hasn't made any of this stuff happen, it's been happened because we're living in a world that is tarnished and marred by sin and by death. But we know that that's not the end of the story. And that's the beauty of the biblical story is that we have the end of the story and we know it. And actually, that's not the end of this story. So let's read uh, chapter 2. And we're going to go all the way through chapter 2 today. I'm just going to talk about chapter 2 and then we'll have chapter 3 next week. So Ruth, if you're not sure where it is, it's just after Judges, just before 1 Samuel. 
Now Naomi, a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing, was from, from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Sorry, let me start that again. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. Now it makes sense. A man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. She sat down with the harvesters. He offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz ordered, or gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she gathered and it mounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her and what she had left over, she had eaten enough. That didn't make sense. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. There we go. Her mother-in-law asked, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He's not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers or kinsman redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all the grain. Naomi said to Ruth, in her, her daughter-in-law, it'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. So what we want to look at today is, I suppose, is, is there such thing as luck? That was the sort of title or the framing of this story. And Right at the start of this, this uh, chapter, we have this curious verse or this curious little phrase that says, uh, when Ruth goes out to, to, to enter the field, she began to glean behind the harvesters, as it turned out. And um, I don't know whether the author was, was putting that particular word in to say, it just so happened, 
as it turned out, whether there was any, or whether I'm just emphasizing it, the bold type is my own, by the way. Um, she was working in a field that belonged to Boaz. So, um, so she could have gone to any field, yeah? But she just, to, just so happened to turn upon Boaz's field, who she didn't know. And it just so happened to be Boaz was part of her in-laws. So she, he was a, a, a long-lost relative of her mother. Not long-lost relative, but a relative of her mother. And um, Boaz just happened to be a guy who was an incredibly kind and godly man. So he could have been anybody's field. And as we know in this story, the fact that Boaz has to tell his workers not to lay a hand on her, it shows that there probably was quite common that, that if you were a foreigner particularly, and a woman, you were so vulnerable to particularly men abusing you. And maybe it's not that different today. You know, foreigner, if, when, when we've got foreign people in our city, they're either often, often they're rejected or they're abused. Or they, they're given, they're, you know, there's comments about, there's racist comments, there's all that stuff. And, uh, and that would have been no different. And in fact, it would have been worse then. Um, there was no protection for her. And it just so happened she stumbled across a field where she, was, she met Boaz. So, and it got me thinking about luck. Is there such a thing as luck? Now, as Christians, I did quite a bit of research on the internet. Interestingly, you find a load of blog sites, and there are some Christian blog sites that say, essentially, everything that happens, whether passively or actively, God is in charge. So essentially, nothing can happen without God say so. I'm like, well, that leaves you with an awful lot of questions about the bad stuff that happens, doesn't it? And you, I think as much as you get, it's a nice, tidy equation, you're actually left probably with more questions about how God allows things to happen than you are satisfied at the end. And I'm like, well, does that tie up with our own experience? And um, do coincidences happen? No, I think they do. I actually think there's times, for example, trivial examples. You are thinking about somebody you've not seen for years, not for years, and then you walk into a shop and they're there. That's a coincidence, isn't it? Like, well, that's weird. What's that? Is that just, is God somehow orchestrated that? Is that something else going on? Or is that just a coincidence? Or you are late for a, a, a meeting and you go and you, you find that there's no car parking spaces and uh, you're like, oh, flipping it, what am I going to do? And then suddenly somebody comes out at an unexpected moment. Wow, it's a, it's a coincidence. There's a car parking space. I go in. And I know people that used to sing, in fact, Morag's family used to sing, thank God for car parking spaces. Uh, there was a Christian song and, it, and she, they changed the words, but we, I think it was something like, we give him thanks for car parking spaces. And it was a kind of like, everything that happened was kind of God's, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a line of thought that everything that happens is God's, God's intervention, or maybe it's just a coincidence. We're not told. The, 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 the interesting thing about this story is that nothing is, is that clear to us. It's not said that this is God's doing at all. We're left to leave our own conclusions. And you could say, so there's people that say, well, there's no such thing as luck. You make your own luck. And uh, you could say, well, Ruth made her own luck. She could have done what Naomi did and was just stayed at home and felt sorry for herself. Now, I'm not, I'm not belittling Naomi and how much she must have felt, but she, it's very tempting to just stay at home and think, well, feel sorry for myself, blame God, and, or even perhaps say, well, okay, God, you've got me into this mess. You do something and get me out of it, and I'll just wait and see what you're going to do. But Ruth didn't do that. She went out. She took, <laughs> um, she took a... Um, she took her, the, uh, her own steps and she went out from her house and she said, I'm going, to take, I'm going to make a decision. So I'm going to make a decision. And because she made a decision, she also took a risk, a big risk. She could have been abused. Anything could have happened. And it just so happens that we make decisions in lives. God gives us free will, doesn't he? And sometimes we make decisions and the consequences are good. And sometimes we make decisions 
and it turns out bad. It's not necessarily because you've made a mistake, it's just things don't always turn out as we, as we expect them. So was it that? Was it that Ruth made her own look? Or was it potentially the third option? I don't know if there are any other options, but that God was somehow involved in the good thing, the blessing that happened in the story. And as we find out more about the story, the story turns out really, really well in the end. It doesn't minimize all the bad stuff that's happened, but it does turn out really good. And it's the question, what do we do when good things happen to us? It's easy to say, I think it's easy to say what happens when bad things happen because it's, it's the world we live in. But when good things happen, what do we do? Do we just say, oh, I'm lucky today? Or, well, I made that happen and, you know, or maybe it's just, oh, somebody was really kind or whatever it is. Or was it, or do we say, perhaps I wonder if God is involved somehow in ways that I maybe couldn't understand. Did God draw Ruth to that particular field at that time? Did he cause her to choose that field? Clearly he was involved in Boaz's life and the very fact that Boaz is a very godly man and he, knew, and he enacted an Old Testament uh, law, which is still, I, I think if, we, if businesses did this today, it would still be, it'd be fantastic that the Old Testament law was that if you had a field, you had to leave some of the edges of your field for poor people. So don't take everything in and keep it for yourselves and try, or, or try and sell it all. Keep some of the edges of your field for, for the poor. And actually, it's a great principle for us. It's like, have a little bit of margin left over because you never know when somebody's going to come who you can, you can bless with that money. And Boaz knew that. He was a godly man. So God was clearly involved in that respect in his life. God was involved in the fact that he, he shaped, shell, shaped uh, Boaz's character. But did he do more? And that's the question. So how do we make sense of that? And, and it brought me into this, uh, um, the thing that I tend to do anyway, even if it is a thank God for car parking spaces, which is something ridiculously trivial. But I just think, let's just thank God anyway. Because if you don't know whether God's involved, I sometimes find myself praying, God, I don't know whether you're involved in that, but thanks anyway. And I know God already knows what I'm going to say, but I I like to just say things. That's how I process things out loud. But there's times when things happen and I've not necessarily prayed for it and it's happened and it's been quite remarkable or something that's a really good thing that's happened and I just thank God for it anyway. Because I think to develop an attitude of gratitude is something as Christians that we, we, we should be doing. And there are times when we just don't know. There are times when we pray and things happen, but there are times when things just happen and we don't know whether God's been involved in it or not. So, but we do have to believe that God is involved. And if we don't, we may as well give up praying today. So if you, don't think, if you think that God has only created the world and he's left it to go as the, the way it's going to go, then you may as well give up praying because God isn't, isn't interacting with his creation and there were people around the time, you know, there have been philosophies of, of that where God is, like, I think it's deus, 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 is it? Really, where it's just essentially God has set it in motion, but now he's no longer involved. And as Christians, I don't think the Bible, the Bible certainly doesn't tell us that that's the case, that actually God is involved. And uh, we know that um, in spite of our own actions, whether they're good or bad, in spite of mistakes or accidents that happen, in spite of free will that God has given us, in spite of the natural laws that God has put in place, like you, you know that if you uh, fall too close to the edge, you stay on the edge of your bed, you know that gravity at some point is going to knock, if you fall, you're going to hurt yourself, you're going to fall, aren't you? That's a natural law that God has put in place. That's a consequence of the laws of nature. And the fact that we live in a fallen, decaying world, somehow still God is involved and, and works things out. Now, the difficulty is that we don't know sometimes how God does it. And uh, we might not always understand 
how God is working out his purposes in our lives. Um, we know he's working out his, his grand purpose. We know that Jesus has intervened with his, his life, his death, and his resurrection. We know the big story that Jesus is going to come back again, and we know that he's going to put all things right. But the in-between bit is how, did, how is God involved in working out good? And this is what Paul writes to an early, the early church in Rome when they're first facing persecution in the first century. He says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And the difficulty is for us, we don't always know how, we don't always know why. Uh, and that's where we just have to trust that God is still at work. Otherwise, we may as well stop praying. Because if we don't think God is, is, is involved, we may as well not bother praying because there's no point asking him to get involved because he's not going to be involved. But we do believe that. And I do believe that, 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 that God is involved. In fact, so much so that um, when I started, to pray, I started to pray when I was 17, I went on, interestingly, I went on an alpha course because Morag invited me. And at that point, I had no concept of praying other than, please help me do well in my football match, God. And that was the only other thing I think I ever prayed, or maybe for a girlfriend. Uh, uh, I don't think I had any other concept of God than that. Um, and I went on Alpha course, and I asked all these questions. I was the guy that was like the really irritating, like, yeah, but what about dinosaurs? Yeah, if God exists, what about dinosaurs? What about this? Yeah, we've got 6,000 years, really? really? Like, I was like the one, just like, absolutely. And all these people were incredibly gracious to me and didn't at any point, they didn't show if they were offended, they didn't show it, but I was such an obnoxious swine. And, uh, but I got to about week of four or five, and I thought, yeah, I know I still am, Frank, thanks. Um, I got to week four or five, and I thought, I think this, this makes sense. And Jesus said the most beautiful words I've ever read and has lived the best life I've ever seen. So what have I got to, to lose than to try it out? And I read this, a Nicky Gumbel, Why Jesus booklet. On the back it says, there's a prayer you can say, you know, sorry, thank you, please. And that was it. And I was expecting something amazing to happen and nothing happened. I, I even knelt down by the side of my bed because I thought that's what you had to do. I knelt down by the side of my bed, I was 17 years old, and I said, sorry, thank you, please. Um, right, God, you know, if you're real, show yourself to me. And I thought, what's going to happen? Nothing happened. So I walked back into college and I thought, okay, interesting. Well, I'm going to start praying and I'm going to believe that God listens. And um, there were so many things that I prayed for that started to happen. And I was like, hmm, that's a coincidence, isn't it? So one of the things that happened, just a couple of examples, were Morag and I had, I don't know whether, now I understand why people thought we were mental, right? Because I look at my own children and think, wow, I was your age, Cameron, when I was deciding to get married. We decided we were going to get married. <laughs> And uh, everybody except Morag's family thought we were crazy. Teachers, friends. I'd become, I was this sort of rebel teenager who'd become a Christian and started to tell everybody, teachers, college um, uh, staff room, everything. And so much so that one of my teachers, I was, so, I was so argumentative in general studies that one of the teachers who led general studies said to me, what has happened to you? Why are you arguing about God and the existence of, of God? Because we had this, this general studies session about, about the creation of the world and about evolution and stuff. And, and he was just so amazed at the change in me in such a short time that people thought I was involved in some kind of cult. And uh, Anyway, we also then decided we we're going to get married. So it was like, whoa. So he's changed completely from this person. And he's going to get married. He's only 18 years old. And she's only 19. This is crazy. And now we understand why they thought we were crazy. But uh, <laughs> thankfully, 20 years on, we're still together. So uh, it obviously was a good decision. But at the time, I thought, okay, my parents had been divorced. And I'd been through that. And it was a painful time. And I thought, God, 
I don't want to jump into doing something that could have a massive repercussions in the rest of my life. God, will you just, just, everybody's telling me this is wrong. Please, will you just show me some kind of sign that this is right, that this is the right thing to do? I'm not just getting swept up in all the emotion and all the other stuff and all the new stuff that's happening in my life. And this is one of the times when God answered a prayer really quickly. I was walking into college as I was praying this. And there'd been a girl who, who was really friendly with me all through my childhood until I became a Christian. And she hated it. She absolutely, I don't know why, but she just hated the fact, even though I was doing all sorts of rebellious things before, now I'd be trying to become this nice person. She hated it. And uh, she wouldn't talk to me. And anyway, as I'm walking, I've just finished praying. I said, give us a sign, God. This girl comes in on a bike and she says, Peacock. Uh, that's what you used to call me because that's my name. Uh, <laughs> they call me other things as well, but I can't repeat them. Uh, Peacock, uh, we've all been thinking about your wedding and... Uh, we all want to buy you a wedding present, so just let us know what it is. All right. And I was like, okay. Right, this girl would not, hasn't been speaking to me because I've become Christian. She thinks I'm crazy. And now she's told, I've just asked God for a sign about my marriage. And now she's asked, told me about a wedding present they want to buy for me. I thought, hmm, that's a coincidence. Hmm, is it? Okay. And then we went up to, decided to go and visit the in-laws up in Scotland. You know, the, the, enemy, of, the enemy of our country. And uh, <coughs> went up to see, visit Morag's granny up in Aberdeen. And her uncle was there. And obviously it was a bit of like, you need to come and get to know the in-laws and meet the family and stuff. And uh, at that point, by the way, I had a pair of 10-pound 10, 10 Windsor shoes uh, and they were being taped up because uh, we had no money. And, uh, and it was snowing six feet. Of it, six, so it was a great impression on my in-laws at that point. <laughs> this guy's a, a real cheapskate. Um, anyway, I met her uncle. And my uncle said a few weeks before, he'd found a diamond ring in Aberdeen. And he'd given it into the police and said, you know, we found this ring. Somebody will claim it. Within two or three weeks, I think it is, that the police said, once, if nobody claims it, you get it back, and it's yours to keep. And he said, I think God was saying this should be for you. So Morag tries it on, and it fits perfectly. I thought, it's a 24-karat gold diamond ring. We could never afford We had no money. I bought my, I still got my 10-pound H Samuel Argos ring on my finger from 20 years ago. Um, we had no money or anything, obviously. I was still at college, and I was working part-time in a cafe for two pounds an hour, I got a pay rise to 220. I was well, well chuffed. And Morag was working on her year out in a little sandwich shop for minimum wage as well. So we had no money. And then we got this incredible ring. And I thought, hmm, that's a coincidence. And I started, this started to happen over and over again. And particularly in my early Christian life, I think I've seen it less as I've got old, older. And I think, this, I think this, I might be completely wrong here, but I think this is, this is like a honeymoon period when you become a Christian where God seems to confirm to you that he is involved in your lives and that when you pray, he listens and he acts. And it's like an encouragement to, to keep praying. It's an encouragement to boost your faith. And there's only so many coincidences that happen when you start thinking, I wonder if these are actually coincidences or actually something else is going on here. And because I believed that God listened, I prayed and it happened. And it was the, one of the things that confirmed to me that I, I wanted to become a Christian. Because God answered my prayer. And it's often only when we, when we look back, isn't it, we see that God's timing or we see God's solution to a problem we couldn't have imagined would work out. And that's one of the things that's quite hard to explain to non-Christians. Like, it's really hard to explain to you just how something happened, but I know that God is, was involved. And I think that's what we're meant to see in the story of Ruth, that it's really hard, it's been a really difficult journey, but I think we're meant to see that God has been involved all along. And often it's through the kindness of other people. In those two examples of mine, it was through the kindness of, of friends. In this story, it was through the kindness of a stranger in terms of Boaz. 
And I was thinking about what, how does work, and this was, this was a little quote I found actually that was part of the Alpha course, and it was William Temple, who's an, a former archbishop, he said, uh, when I pray, coincidences happen, and when I don't, they don't. And I don't know whether he actually does believe that, that there is no such thing as a coincidence, but I think the point is either way, he's saying, the more you pray, the more you see. The more you trust God, the more you'll see God's hand in your life. If, you, if you're not sure and you think, oh, a bit like Naomi, what's the, what's the point? God's, you know, God's not for me anyway. Then you won't see much because you're not looking for it. But the more you pray, the more you see. The more you ask for, the more you, you will, God will answer, you, answer the prayers. And, um, and I started to think, okay, what's, what was the part of God in the story, even though God's never mentioned? And I was thinking that it's a partnership. Like, like Most of life is, is a partnership, isn't it? We don't just sit around and pray and hope that things will happen and wait for God to do everything because God has given us free will and he wants us to be part of it. But often what happens is we receive much more than we could ever imagined. And I was looking through the story and thinking, okay, what was Ruth's part and what was God's part? Uh, Ruth's part was, one of the things she did was she left the house. Okay, she didn't just sit there like Naomi and think, well, I'm, what are we going to do? We're doomed. All right, she said, I'm going to leave the house. I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to take a step to do something. And she was only looking for food. But she received much more. She was noticed. Boaz noticed her. Now, perhaps it's not surprising. She was a foreigner. She probably would have stood out a mile, presumably. I don't know what the difference is in, in features and stuff between people from Moab and, and Israel, but I presume there would have been some, and she would have stood out. But it wasn't just that she, he, he noticed her. Oh, but that's somebody different. He noticed her. He saw, saw somebody. And I think if we all want to be noticed, don't we? We see it in the cafe so much. Lonely people come in. They want to be noticed. They want to, somebody to say, you exist, I see you. I see you're a, you're a person, you, you, you're worth something. And she was noticed by Boaz in that way. It wasn't just, oh, she's there. It was, you're, you're, a, you're worth something, I notice you. She worked hard. And all she was really wanting was leftover corn. She must have known, perhaps through Naomi being a, being a Jew, she must have known that the, that the principle of going to a field um, belonging to, to a Jew would have meant that she could have got leftovers. She was only looking for leftovers. And she found much more in return. She was actually protected. She could, Boaz could have said, yeah, you can, have, you can left, you know, get, pick up the leftovers, but if you, get, you know, if you get hurt or you get abused, well, it's up to you because you're a foreigner or you're not actually, you don't actually deserve it. You've not worked for it. Um, but he didn't. He protected her. She received much more than she could have imagined. She made herself vulnerable. She was incredibly vulnerable uh, as a woman. And she found much more than just food. She found hospitality. He invited her to stay and eat with them. She said, he said to her, come and eat with us. Come and eat with my workers. Come and eat with the women that glean in the field. She found a community. She found hospitality. She asked for help. I think it's really difficult. I'm a person who's historically quite difficult. I quite find it quite hard to ask for help because I don't want to put on other people. I don't want people to feel like they... Uh, they're busy, they've got, their lives are busy enough and I don't want to ask them to, to step in. But she made herself vulnerable and she said, I'm needy. Essentially, the fact that she's gone to look for leftovers in somebody else's field shows that she's willing to ask for help. And in, 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 in return, she actually received much more. She went home to Naomi with leftovers from the leftovers. So she'd eaten, she'd had a meal, she'd picked up enough grain, and then she went home with even more. And Naomi's going, whoa. You've come back with so much more than, than you could have ever imagined. And finally, she accepted the help. Sometimes people offer help and you don't accept it because, again, for any reason, it could be you feel a bit proud or it could be that you don't want to put on people or whatever, but she accepted it. 
she was strong enough and vulnerable enough at the same time to say, I need help and I'm willing to accept it. And she found more, much more. The actual commitment she found was that they said to her, Boaz said to her, you can stay till the end of the harvest, which presumably would have been weeks, if not longer. So she didn't just get one day of generosity, which sometimes is you know, tempting for us just to give, give a one-off payment to children in need, for example. She found commitment for, for, for a longer haul period. And I just can't help but think that that was God's part in it. I know he used Boaz, and Boaz was his means of blessing for Ruth and her family. But I think, I think we're meant to read it and say, that's where God was involved. She came looking for this, but he, she received much more than she could ever imagine. And, I, and I, the question was, for me and for you, is when, do we, when have we in our lives experienced that, the same thing? We've expected so little, and yet we've, en- we've ended up with so much more than we could have ever imagined. And, and often you go, I don't know about you, but I often look back on situations and think, I'm so sorry, God, that I had such, so little faith that, that you were going to come through and do this. And in fact, I can't even imagine how we got to this place that we're in. I can't, I can't give you, I can't, thanks is not enough because you've, you've just overwhelmed me with something in the, in the ways that you've worked is something so incredible. And I think that's what happened in here. Slight tangent, but related. DIY SOS. Is anybody not aware of DIY SOS, the program? Okay, so everybody's aware. It's on its 28th season at the moment, right? So you don't get 28 series or seasons if you're not doing something right. I don't know about you, but I watch it every now and again. I can't watch it every week because I just cry every time. Uh, I think if you don't cry at DIY SOS, you've got to ask yourself, are you even alive? Because it's just, it's just incredibly moving every single time. And even the time I go, I'm not going to cry this time. And I'm going, you know, you see, and you just always, there's always grown men crying on it as well. And, um, and I love it because I see, you see a picture, I think you see a picture in DOSOS of something in the kingdom of God. You see these families that in many, in the world's eyes would be incredibly unlucky. They've had more than their fair share, most of them, of heartache and pain. Not just the usual stuff usually, it's usually quite extreme. And <clears throat> they get to the stage where, it's all centered around their own house being a mess. And it's like the house is the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's like the final straw. They, life is so hard for them that they just cannot find the energy to sort the house out as well. And often the house is like a massive, massive problem in their lives. And uh, they make themselves vulnerable. So they say, we're, we're at our wit's end here. We need help. And they ask for help. And what they find in the end is they find so much more than they could have asked for. I just want to show you a little clip of one I watched a couple of weeks ago. The audio is not great, but um, I think it's clear enough to, to listen to. He and his fiancée know that dialysis needed for stage five or end-stage patients such as Sasha is so demanding and aggressive it can be life-threatening. Sasha has previously experienced what can go wrong after she attended hospital for a regular appointment. My heart rate was, was 200 beats a minute and they did a test to, to see the condition of my heart and it had gone into a really dangerous, abnormal rhythm and I had to have life-saving resuscitation drugs to kickstart my heart back into a normal rhythm. With Sasha leading such a precarious existence, it was her younger brother Darren who offered a lifeline. My brother said to me, if you need my kidney, then... then you can have it. I don't want you going through that. The transplant operation was a success. Sasha had got her life back thanks to Darren's amazing gift. Everything kind of started going back to normal after the recuperation period. Went back to work. Um, 
Yeah, it's great. Well, sure, but great. Hmm. And we had just got back on our feet. And there was a knock at the door. And there was a policeman. He told me that my little brother had died in the night. He had taken his own life and um, we, it, it was just the biggest shock because I didn't even know as we were so close, saw him every day, spoke to him every day and there was not one hint that he was depressed or feeling low or, or anything. He, it, it was just like the biggest bolt out of the blue. After that happened, um, it was just a really, really difficult time because my little brother and me had been through so much together. I just, just couldn't cope, just life, work. And I started to feel poorly again. And I think I knew, I knew really what was going on. And then the doctor said, we're really sorry, but you're losing your, your brother's kidney. Sasha's body rejected her brother's kidney. There was no choice but to go back on dialysis. Some people seem to have more pain than seems fair. We have a chance here to bring a little sunshine back. A chance of a real home life. Our builders know that. Back on site, walls are going up as quickly as they're coming down. Sasha's story is really propelling this build forward. Out back, it's like a giant game of Jenga. 200 wooden sleepers are starting to... All right, so that's just, uh, that was just the, the context of that story. And, uh, you know, I don't need to, to, to summarise it for you, but what a difficult, what a difficult um, life she's had and the family have had. And um, really what they asked DIYSOS for was for a room where she could have dialysis at home. So she didn't have to keep going into the hospital every day for hours a day. That she, the, part of the, the rest of the story is that she misses every tea time and every bedtime with the children because she has to go in uh, and have five, six hours of dialysis every single day of the week because it's so aggressive. And it's also having the aggressive dialysis actually shortens her life expectancy as well. So have, if she could have it at home more constantly and slower, it can actually increase her, her life expectancy. So she, they were just asking for one room where she could have that. But obviously, it has to be incredibly um, hygienic and, uh, you know, and, and there's lots and lots of requirements for this to be able to, to take place. And um, what happens is they receive, she asks for help, but she receives much more. And the house reservations... They do the room for dialysis, but they're given this beautiful home as well. It's extravagant. It's way more than they asked for, and it's way more than they needed. But they're given spaces and, and, and time to spend as a family, and they're overwhelmed by the kindness of other people. And I just think it is, it's just a beautiful picture of, of God's kingdom on earth. I don't know how many of those people are Christians, but they're certainly embodying the Christian values in what they're doing. And when at its best, the family of God, when we help one another and we, we, we reach out to people who are in need, that is a picture of what it will be like when heaven comes on earth. And um, he uses people like us to bring his blessing. And I just want to show you the end of it because it shows you just how much this means to, and how much of a difference it's meant to the family and to the people who worked in it. I can't believe it. There are literally no words. This is just a dream come true.
something you wanted to say to everybody? Shout it out loud then. Thank you for giving your mum that.
And perhaps you're, you're, you identify with Naomi, you're struggling. Maybe you grieve him, and perhaps even wondering where God is, or even blaming God in the middle of it. And uh, I suppose my encouragement would just be to make yourself vulnerable, to ask for help. Um, as difficult as it might be, um, that's, where you, that's where it starts, that's where it begins. And uh, we're a family, and if we can't ask one another for help, then who can we ask? And perhaps God will do more than you could imagine um, is possible. Perhaps you're more like Ruth. Maybe you're the sort of person who's a sort of proactive person, likes to make things happen, likes to, has to be involved in different things. And uh, it's brilliant. It'd be brilliant to be a Ruth. Uh, but also we need reminder, if you're that sort of person, I know I need this reminder sometimes, that it's not all down to you. Actually, there, there are other people involved and there's God involved in the midst of it. You can't do it all on your own. God needs to do, be involved in, in what you're doing. Or maybe you're more like Boaz. And again, we would all do well to, to look at the life of Boaz and his actions and to, to try and emulate him. He noticed somebody's struggle and he's willing, he's willing to give up so much to help them. And um, I just think Boaz embodies so much of, of the Christian ethos, but he also embodies you know, two of our core values as a church. And I was thinking about, about the core values we, ha- we say we have as a church and two of them are paying close attention to one another and being good news. And one of the things I was thinking, do you notice when people are struggling. Do you notice when you look around today, the people that are not here? Now, it might be just because they're not here for all sorts of reasons, but there are people that have been part of this church for a long, long time and have, for, re- for all sorts of reasons, are not here at the moment. How much have you noticed? How much have I noticed? Have we contacted them? It could mean all the difference to contact somebody and say, look, I've missed you. You've not been around. Just wondering if you're okay. And you never know. You might, you might not get a response, but how, much, how good would it be just to think about that today? Think about those who might be struggling. Boaz did it in his workplace. And uh, I just, just f- finished with a final story that my daughter Erin told me this week. She's, she said I'm allowed to, to use it, so it's all right. Um, <clears throat> she was at school. And last year, in year 10, um, there was a lad struggling with maths. And uh, this year, this teacher moved this, this lad next to Erin. And uh, he's, they're doing the mocks. They did their mocks about two or three weeks ago. And Erin's been helping him when he's not understood what the teacher's been saying. Anyway, he's got this mock result, and he's gone from a 2, which I think is like a low D, maybe an E, up to a 5, which is three grades higher. And he said, this is because you, I understand you more than the teacher. Now, whether that's all, you know, I'm sure there's more going on than that. But um, but Erin gave up gave up some of her learning time to just notice somebody who's struggling. She could have said, well, the teacher's moved you next to me, but... It's not my responsibility. I'm not getting paid to teach you. I've got my own stuff to sort out, you know. And uh, she didn't. She's helped him. And so much so, <laughs> interesting thing, she came back after this about a week after and said, oh, I'm, uh, I'm going to be teaching maths to somebody else in the class now, uh, but this is going to be in my form time. And I said, in your form time, what do you do in form time? She said, oh, it's just everybody just does whatever they want in form time, just chills out. And I said, you're going to be teaching maths. So, yeah, because this girl said she's really struggling and she's heard that I'm, I've helped this other lad. So I'm going to do it. And she's done it with no sort of, oh, I have to do it type of attitude. It's a kind of, almost like she feels privileged to be able to help somebody. And it's a small thing, but actually it's quite a big sacrifice to make. And you notice somebody. I just think it's like, there's so many ways that you can, you can embody these values and, and notice people that are struggling and, and give what you can. Um, just thought it was a really nice little story. Um, and the same is true with, like, for example, our missional groups with Charlie and co. Um, we're just helping somebody clear out a garden or decorate a house. If you know a neighbour that 
that might need that. That could just make all the difference to them. Clearing the garden is the secondary thing, really. The the thing is being noticed. The thing is being helped. That's what will make the difference. Um, So just to end on this, you know, we live in a world that's full of brokenness, full of pain, full of tragedy. And some people seem to get more than, than is fair. Life isn't fair because we live in a broken world. There's no point in saying it's not fair. It isn't fair. That's right. It's not fair. But it's also beautiful because it still retains the image of the creator, of our creator. And God's still involved in it as well. And as Christians, we have to believe that our lives are not just purely determined by chance, by coincidence, by your own actions. You can't just make everything happen. And not only by the actions of other people, but God is involved. And often it's in times and ways beyond our control and beyond our understanding and that's certainly true in the story of Boaz as we'll hear in future weeks so let's let's partner with him and let's try and bring about his good purposes I'm going to invite Jay and the guys to come back and today if you're in in the in any of the shoes of Naomi's and you need help you need prayer please don't leave without without asking for it without accepting it if you know somebody else who's struggling this morning, you're looking around, they're not here, just drop them a text, give them a ring, see how they are. So Lord, we thank you that you're involved in our lives. We thank you that you're not a God who's just set the wheels in motion and left us to it. But you're a God who is intimately cares for his creation and for his people. Lord, I thank you for, for the examples all over the world in so many different ways of, of people who were who are reaching out and noticing people. People like Boaz, people like the guys who just uh, seen on DIY SOS, people like Erin in the maths class. <clears throat> we thank you for those examples, Lord, and we, we long to, to play our part as well. Lord, would you show us where we can do that? Would you show us the the Naomi's, the Ruth's, the people that are vulnerable, the people that are just crying out to be noticed, crying out for help? Lord, may we partner with you by your spirit to bring about your kingdom and your purposes. Lord, when we struggle to see and make sense of what's happening, help us to trust in you. Thank you that you are for us and you are bringing about your purposes. 